Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. And my guest today is Miriam Chilton, who is the Vice President for Youth at the Union for Reform Judaism. She's been at the URJ for the past nine years in a variety of roles, including the Director of Strategy for Finance and Operations for Youth, Camp, and Israel programs. Prior to joining the URJ, Miriam worked in the corporate world for over 20 years, most notably at Time and what is now UBS. Miriam came to the URJ after spending eight years on her temple board. And I'll let her talk a little more about the impact of that experience. The reason I wanted to bring Miriam on the program today is that I'd really like this project to provide access to a wide range of professionals in the Jewish community. And youth is really among the largest section of engagement that we have. And not only do these programs expose our children to the idea of being a Jewish professional and what that might look like, but also for those who work as youth professionals and what kind of start to a further career in the Jewish field that may or may not provide. So that's enough for me, and I will welcome Miriam to the program. Well, thank you. Uh, And thank you very much, Michelle, for inviting me to be part of your podcast series. I'm quite honored to be here. So go ahead. Just tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are in this wonderful position with the URJ. You know, it is a great question. And it's a story that I like to tell because I think it is, in some situations, a bit of a different trajectory than most Jewish communal professionals. I was raised in a wonderful, nurturing, conservative home. It was Shomer Shabbat. I went to Hebrew day school. And in my high school years, I really began to question Judaism in my life, that the conservative community that I was a part of felt very isolationist and felt very insular and did not align with my worldview at the Mm -hmm. time. So over the years, as a college student and as a young adult, I sort of drifted from organized religion and at the same time became quite involved in a number of social justice causes. I was very involved in the feminist movement. I was very involved in environmental issues. And just as a interesting side note, I was also very engaged in the anti-nuclear armament movement. And at the time I had very, very long hair. And Mm -hmm. one reason why I have short hair today is I participated in a protest in the concourse of the Pentagon, where we did sort of civil disobedience and death who came in cloaked in a black garment and long shears sort of cut each of our hair as a way to trade to those in the Pentagon the implications of nuclear weapons. And since that time, I've been unable to grow back my lot. That's but, powerful. Uh, but I still am very much involved in a wide array of social justice issues. So when I graduated college, I really attempted to work in a variety of social justice fields, but actually found myself working in a law office. And uh, over the years, I became 
more familiar with what law required as a profession and decided that that wasn't going to be the path for me, but at the same time got very involved in understanding how technology could bring solutions to business problems. So I took a bit of a jog from my social justice journey into technology and business administration, and I got my master's in business and a master's of science in information systems. And that is what took me to financial services and ultimately to print publishing in the media industry. What I found was technology and business was a phenomenal career, but it didn't really speak to what was important to me about really trying to make the world a bit of a better place and really started to question what it was that I wanted from life and from a profession. And at that time, I had been quite engaged in my congregation and had served in a variety of roles from finance to membership to religious living to cultural affairs and and the like, and just recognized the importance of community that congregations provide, but not only communities for community's sake, but how when a community is brought together, that that is what can lead to real change and real action in the world. So when I began to question what my career was offering me and I was examining what my personal choices were providing, I attempted to try and merge the two. And that is when I ended up at the Union for Reform Judaism. And it has been a wonderful match. And it has taught me a tremendous amount during the time that I have been there and have really been as much a student of the movement as well as an opportunity to use some of my skills and my visions to set the leadership trajectory for the important work that we're doing to engage the next generation. Awesome. So what brought you back to a synagogue? You you mentioned kind of not being engaged or kind of being turned off by the more formal religious life, and here you are, you know, super involved (laughs) with your congregation. It's a great question. And it really happened at a time where I had got married and we started a family and really examining what kind of community we wanted to provide for our children. And also what was sort of the framework in which we wanted to teach our children what life had to offer. And it was at that point where my orientation shifted that I really began to examine and appreciate all that Judaism had to offer in that context. And our synagogue was incredibly instrumental in helping us raise our children who are wonderful young adults. And they participated actually even before I joined the URJ in many of the programs that the URJ had to offer. And I think it's through those experiences, through the congregational community that supported them and the community in which we live that really allowed them to understand that they were accepted, that they were respected, and that they were a valuable member of our community. Yeah, and that is all we can hope for with the work that we do with our youth and with with our kids in these organized environments. And that's wonderful to hear. You can give a shout out. Tell us what community you're a part of. Temple Neerotamid in Bloomfield, New Jersey. It's a magnificent community. Wonderful. And I just want to touch a little bit and not spend too much time on this, but it's a very interesting story and obviously not a unique one for those that either transition from the for-profit world into the Jewish community or from the Jewish community into the for-profit world. And 
you know, sometimes there's animosity on either end, right? So the ones that come in, why are you coming into the Jewish community and devaluing, you know, Jewish professionals that spend their whole life doing this work? And on the other side, those who, you know, have spent a long time in the Jewish community and decide to go to the for-profit world is a feeling of, you know, are we not good enough for you? Do you want to go make more money? You know, so it's a very interesting dynamic and I'm sure it's not specific to the Jewish community. Are any of these tensions things you have felt? You know, it's it's a great question. And I think every experience is different. So I will speak to mine. When I made the transition, I did so, I think, with a significant amount of humility and a willingness to start at a pretty entry level position. So it required compromises on my financial expectations. It required compromises on sort of understanding what it was that I would and wouldn't be responsible for, but felt that what I was getting was worth it. Mm -hmm. So I came in with an understanding that I had a tremendous amount to learn, but I also felt that there were things and skills that I had to offer. And it did not take long for the organization to sort of acknowledge where it is that I brought strength. And similarly, it didn't take me long to understand what it is that I didn't know and what it is that I needed to learn. And the role of a Jewish professional of being an educator is something that I have come to deeply admire and appreciate both the impact that it has, which is really the most important element of it, but also the pedagogical approach that understands the importance of asking questions in the right way. Because I think much of the work that we do at the URJ and especially in the youth space is being able to provide the opportunity for the voices and the ideas of our young people to flourish and to find a place and a home in Judaism, but able to shape it and drive it for the future. You know, I think that the URJ has been a wonderful place to support that learning, as well as to provide the opportunity to bring in the kind of systems-based thinking the kind of business acumen to understand that it's not only about good ideas, but about ideas that can be sustained over time in all the important ways, whether it's financial or organizational, and being able to map not only the work internal the URJ, but that the work that's being done outside of the URJ to understand the strength and the unique position that we play within the communal space. That's great. I feel like with any new position, being able to highlight your strengths and understand your learning curve, both very important and having an organization that supports that is also very important. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about the kind of work that you do in this space. In the most simple way, I think that the work that we're doing with youth is really changing the world and trying to make the world a better place. There is a story that has been told by Rabbi Salanter, who was the founder of the modern Musar movement, where he says that he originally felt that he wanted to change the world. And when he realized that he couldn't change the world, he decided that he was going to change his town. And when he couldn't change his town, he said he was going to change his family. And when he couldn't, wasn't effective in making the change with his family, that he realized that 
he needed to make the change within himself. And that when he recognized that, he was able to impact his family, his town, and the world in which he lived. And I think that the work that the URJ does, whether it is in our incredible camping system, where we are currently running and operating 16 camps, but soon to be 18 as of next year, we're operating a year-round vibrant youth movement that's engaging close to 10,000 young people on an annual basis, the work that we do around Israel education and Israel travel, as well as in our social justice work. It reaches over 21,000 and young people annually, but ultimately it's being able to understand that the reason why we're doing that work is because we feel that it is allowing each and every individual participant to understand who they are based on Reformed Judaism and how that can lead to a more whole, just, and compassionate world. So under your portfolio is these camps, as you mentioned, and then there's the NIFTY programs, right? And then the Israel programs that URJ runs. Is that everything that's under the youth department? Are there things I'm missing? There's our mitzvah core programs, which are our travel-based in-service learning programs in Central America and across the U.S. And in addition, we do a lot of work around leadership development to ensure that the adults who are working with youth have all that they need to be able to be successful in the work that they do, either within their congregations or in, in other venues. You've been in this role for nine years. How have things changed over the last 10 years, obviously, as you mentioned, the initiative of growing the amount of camps that you have, just as a side note, I'm recording from Six Point SciTech Academy uh, today. And so this was a now four years, it just opened to West Coast for next year, one of the camps that you mentioned. And obviously, camping is, I think, one of the holy grails of Jewish identity, right? You know, when you're trying to engage high school kids, you're trying to engage kids at all in Jewish life, camp is this shining beacon of engagement that people just love and it's flourishing unless you have a different perspective. I'd love to hear in kind of these different areas, camping, NIFTY, Israel, Mitzvah, leadership development, how has it changed? In 2011, the URJ launched something called the Campaign for Youth Engagement. And it was a campaign that was announced in reaction to a trend of post-B'nai mitzvah drop-off within Jewish life. And at the time, there were statistics that were being shared that there was like an 80% drop-off and really trying to examine what is it that as a movement we could do to reverse that trend. Since that time, I think that not only through the work of the movement, but there are 10 cities across North America who are partnering with the Jim Joseph Foundation, who are also experimenting with new ways to engage teens, and a growing awareness of the importance of young people in shaping not only Jewish life, but the greater world in which we exist. So I think that there has been a new forum to have this conversation. And again, I think that as history teaches us, you know, things happen in, in cycles. So I don't think that this is the first time it's ever happened in Jewish life. It is a topic that is at the forefront of the Jewish agenda currently. And I think that that is a really important thing and a good thing for the Jewish people. And I think what has changed is this acknowledgement that one size does not fit all. Right. And I think that we're seeing that not only within the youth space, but also uh, within the adult space as well. And understanding that 
because of the diversity of experiences that young people have come to expect because of the flexibility and access that they are used to having. Much of it promulgated by the access to information and the internet, that we have to be responsive to that. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, you had mentioned the Six Points SciTech Academy. Now, that was a response to that need. And I think understanding how do we continue to offer specialty opportunities that speak to very unique needs of our young people is one particular strategy. And it's also understanding that we have to introduce specialization into our more generalist programs as well. And our camps provide a unique opportunity, especially in the 21st century, to allow young people to be truly disconnected and to be able to understand the importance of how to be in relationship to one another, to be in an environment that is in nature and that is not based on technology. Also, again, our camps are so unique because of the role of our young staff and the way in which young people can see themselves, our campers can see themselves in their staff and how our staff can see themselves in the camp directors and the leaders of the camp. And it is just an incredibly important incubator for experimentation and an environment with it being safe and nurturing and loving. And we're encouraging to each and every person to understand how to be the best version of themselves. It's always nice to see something where data has revealed some problem and that it is actually tackled in a very intentional way that is able to see a difference for that particular issue that has come up. It's definitely a wonderful story to be able to tell as opposed to the opposite. (laughs) It's a big problem and it's still a big problem. You know, it's still a big problem, but it's, you know, I think that being able to respond to it in a crafty way is great. So I'll talk a little bit since you spoke about the young people that work at camps. So I started my Jewish career as a religious school teacher and youth group advisor. I also grew up at Camp Elohim in Los Angeles for 20 some odd years. So through those experiences kind of ushered me as a part-time professional into kind of my career trajectory as a full-time professional. And my husband, when he was growing up, everything was, well, you're a doctor or you're a lawyer or you're an accountant. Like these are the options that are available to you. Musician is not available to you. You know, math nerd is not available. Like there are things that are not available to you. And one of them is not Jewish professional as a a career. So he was a YouTube advisor. He was teaching religious school, working in accounting, that's his full-time job. So when he moved out to LA, he was like, well, if I'm going to move across the country, I might as well do something I really love and I'm really passionate about. And luckily it worked out. Now he's in the camping world, but it was always a really difficult thing for us to see ourselves as Jewish youth professionals as a career. And it felt like there were so few jobs in that and so few full-time jobs in that and so few full-time, well-paying jobs in that. From your perspective, that trajectory of people who come into the youth system, who grow up going to camp, doing nifty, you know, getting to college and deciding that this is a career path for them, or they just love youth. And then they look at the field and they're like, well, where's the place for me? Where is this actually in my life down the long term? 
I had mentioned the launch of our campaign for youth engagement, and we did a whole strategic plan about what we would actually do to reverse the trends that I described about the post-Benay Mitzvah drop-off. And one of the key strategies was the importance of elevating the field and elevating the role of youth professionals precisely for that reason. And, you know, there's an interesting tension that I think is worth naming as well, is that you want young professionals to be in relationship with our young people because of the connections and the conversations and the authentic relationships that can be built between the young professional and the participant. And part of elevating the field is expanding the kind of roles that are available within that field. So it's not to say that every youth professional has to be a 15-year career professional, but that there are graduated opportunities so that you can stay within the field and offer the expertise, the guidance, and the wisdom that is gained from being a more mature professional. And I think that with the attention that the Jewish communal space is being placed on youth engagement, that an outcome has to be the elevation of the jobs, of the salaries that go along with the job descriptions, because it is good to have some level of turnover, but being able to retain and attract talent is critical to the long-term success of the goals that we've articulated. We recently have seen that with the infusion of money into Hillel and their focus on training and development and on recruiting talent. So again, I think that we're on a continuum and this is a problem that I think many have identified. Golly Cooks and the work that she's been doing with Leading Edge has also identified it as an area that we have to pay attention to as well. On the positive side is that we do know from studies that have been done is that two thirds of Jewish communal professionals did attend Jewish camp and even more participated in youth groups. So we know that the work that we're doing is the pipeline those professionals. Now, once they are in, how do we elevate the positions and focus on retaining them over time? You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This episode has been made possible through the partnership with Nonprofit Learning Lab, the national nonprofit that connects, supports, and develops individuals seeking to lead the nonprofit sector. They work with individuals to sharpen their skills in fundraising, board development, organizational leadership, and capacity building. They have upcoming institutes in Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Dallas, and more. You can learn more about Nonprofit Learning Lab and all they have to offer on their website, nonprofitlearninglab.org. Before returning to my conversation with Miriam Chilton, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode, Bob Goldfarb, who is the president and CEO of Jewish Creativity International, who fiscally sponsors this project and discusses with me Jewish culture and arts in the modern age, as well as what it's like to do the work of a fiscal sponsor. Here's a clip from our upcoming conversation. 
And one of the exciting things from where I sit is the sheer number of people who have really wonderful ideas that express themselves through Jewish creativity, whether through education or performance or public exhibitions or any of the other ways that reaches people. I come into contact with these people all the time. And there's something powerful in seeing the connection that people make between their Jewish identity and wanting to express it through some artistic medium, partly because of the power of art, but also because for those who think that the only trend is for people to drift away from Judaism, mm -hmm. there is certainly that trend. But there's another trend, which is that for the people who decide to care, who decide to define themselves in part through their Jewish identity, that art remains a fertile way of doing it and a way of doing it that can, as you suggest, have a powerful impact on audiences. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Bob Goldfarb in the next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Miriam. It was always interesting in the field as a youth worker to look at him and be like, this is so awesome and so great and so fun, but I'm not going to be 23 forever. What's kind of the next step? And everyone has their own personal journey of what that makes sense as far as what the next step is. And I think that there is a role for people like me and others in the field to be able to clearly articulate what is the return on investment, investing in our young people. Mm -hmm. How do we actually quantify that out of everything that needs to be invested in, that this is the right way and the right place for that investment? So as Jewish communal professionals, I think we own the responsibility to ensure that important work happens and that we think creatively enough to be able to articulate it so that others not only continue their investment, but increase it as well so that we can invest in the professionals who are doing the work. When did the Youth Summit as part of the Nifty Convention, when did that begin? That's been going on for a, quite a while. It too has evolved, a little bit of history. The way that it started was so many youth professionals came to Nifty Convention to chaperone the teens who were flying in for convention. And we sort of figured we had all of these professionals there. We should get them together to have a conversation. That was way back when. And since then, have really approached it with an intentionality to ensure that the time that they are spending there is used to offer them expert training and opportunity to discuss growing trends that they're seeing in their workplace, create a cohort of support because oftentimes youth professionals are uh, solo operators and feeling like they're connected to a larger community. And also to hear from experts and other professionals in the field as to things that they are seeing so that they can bring it back to their own community. Fantastic networking and community building opportunity for that sector. So what's the future? What do we have to look forward to in the next five, 10 years of our youth environment? What's new? What's exciting? What's, what's happening? You know, I think that we are incredibly optimistic about the future. And this work is not a sprint. It is very much a marathon. 
and understanding that many of the things that we are doing will take multiple years to gain traction, to gain scale, and to gain understanding given the complexity of the Jewish landscape. But we're very committed to our strategy of increasing the number of camps. Currently, our goal is 20 camps by 2020. We're up to 18, so our goal is clearly in sight. We're also acknowledging that youth engagement, where oftentimes we look at it in a teen space, that we have to actually begin the relationship at a much younger age. And mm. So we are extending the work that we're doing. Currently, it's to 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, but now even thinking about do we have to go at a younger age since communities and friend groups and cohorts are often established well before they hit their high school years. Right, right. Nifty regions are now doing sixth, seventh, eighth grade classes as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Again, we are continuing to work with the fantastic youth professionals in our congregations. And that's where I think we have incredible strength. You know, the fact that we are a network of almost 900 congregations, of which close to two thirds actually have active young people within those congregations to really help them and support them to do the incredibly important engagement work on the ground. So we are very committed to those strategies, but I also, as I think I mentioned earlier, is to really acknowledge the power of youth development and understanding what that work needs to look like and this trajectory that we have to move along from thinking that we have the solutions for our young people and actually working alongside of our young people Mm -hmm. can help drive the solutions that are actually meaningful to them. So that's a real cultural change. It's a real shift. And that will take some time for it to actually materialize as we attempt to change behaviors and understandings. Yeah, that's never easy. (laughs) <laughs> that's never easy, even with good reasons and structure, you know, definitely changing people's minds and how they operate. Did you ever think that you were going to be working in Jewish youth? Uh, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I can't say that uh, that oh. was sort of part of my understanding as, as a young person, but yeah. I feel quite lucky to be in this position. I think that there are very few positions that can have the both the impact and the reach than the position that I currently have. And I take it with an incredible responsibility and honor to be able to do the work that I do every day and to work with the people that I get to work with who are equally as committed to not only the organization, but to understanding the value of working with our young people. Mm-hmm. And when you came to URJ, was this just the position you ended up in or did you start in something different and somehow migrated over and found it interesting in sort of this field? I actually, my first position at the URJ uh, was with the camping system, and I came in as just sort of a business manager type of position, working on things like summer payroll and Mm -hmm. doing things like that. It's a happy accident. (laughs) That's great. As they say, I guess it was Bashert. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. So what advice do you have to offer Jewish professionals, professionals in our field altogether, professionals that work in synagogues that keep thinking about their youth and how to keep their um, B'nai Mitzvah kids involved or any other pieces of the field? What advice would you give? 
I think there were several questions in the question. So let let me parse it out. Let me first speak to the question about what advice uh, would I give to a youth professional? And that is to reach out to others who are doing similar work, that it is very easy to become very focused on the work that needs to be done, that sometimes we don't always allow ourselves the opportunity to look at whether we're doing the right work. And by being in conversation with others, it allows us to not only see what others are doing, but also to feel supported since the work can at times feel daunting and overwhelming. Whether that is reaching out to the network within the URJ or whether it is networking with other youth professionals on a local basis from other denominations, whether it's reaching out to your federation, of just really trying to stay connected to others who are doing similar work. I think that it's also important to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. This is a field that's very much about giving to others. And if one is not careful, you can end up giving too much that you feel burnt out. So understanding what you need to keep yourself engaged and committed to the work because that's important to us as well. Whether that is time off, whether that is finding a mentor to sort of help process the things that you are learning and experiencing or feeling, whether it is continuing to seek new opportunities and new challenges so that you feel that you are continually growing and not doing the same thing day in and day out. Another recommendation that I have is we're wrestling with such big issues that we can tend to become a little bit insular in our view of the world. And I think it's important to challenge us to look outside the Jewish world as well, Mm -hmm. sort of see what other approaches that people may be taking to solve similar challenges if they're not specifically Jewish challenges, but also to understand what are the larger drivers in life, because unless we continue to find a way to position our work to feel relevant to the world in which our young people are living in, I think we will become more disconnected and perhaps a little bit uh, more obsolete than, than we should be. You know, I think one of the opportunities that we have in our youth work is this acknowledgement of how Judaism can actually provide our young people with 21st century skills. And when we look at the ability to be creative, to instill the ability of critical thinking, how it is that we collaborate, communication skills, this is all inherent in our Judaism. Again, if we have the skill and the ability to translate what's happening within our Jewish youth work in ways that feel relevant to what it is that many of our parents are valuing, I think, again, it is an opportunity for us to get uh, more adults be supportive of the work that we're doing with our young people. It made me just think about the value of doing it under the hospice of Judaism, right? So you could have an IFTI region or an IFTI event where people come to a party and the teens have a party and then they go home, right? And 
I think the intentionality of the work that a lot of youth workers do to say, let's have a Havdalah, let's maybe keep like some pieces of this that are have a deeper meaning and place for these kids, that it's not just this purely social element that they're going and enjoying, that there's definitely something that's rooted in values and how we interact with one another, which is something you alluded to earlier, that it's not just hang out with fun Jewish people, that it's, it has a deeper purpose in how we're helping our teens and our youth figure out life, especially in that stage, right? It's not an easy stage to be in. And as you mentioned for your kids as well, providing a space where they can be exactly who they are and however that looks. And as long as they're not hurting other people, that that is accepted and in many ways celebrated is a very unique thing to be able to offer the children of our community. Beautifully articulated. Thank you. Yes, when we look at issues that our young people choose to embrace and to advance, whether it's issues around anti-bullying, whether it's issues around inclusion, around gender identity or emotional or behavioral needs, whether it's around the work that we're doing, racial justice campaign or gun violence prevention, it is all really fundamentally rooted in our interpretation of the text and what we're being called to do as human beings and ones that are created in the image of God. So as I said, it is an incredible privilege to be able to do this work and to try and provide those opportunities for an ever-increasing number of young people because of the importance of it. Absolutely. Great. Any other last comments from things in our conversation? Any other things you'd like to bring up in any way? Thank you for asking. There are a couple of stories that I think will really drive home the work that we do. So one story is from a nifty team. We run and operate a camp called Camp Jenny, and it is a long weekend that is held at URJ Camp Coleman in Georgia, where young kids from a inner city school from Atlanta come and have a camp-like experience. And it is the first time for many of these kids that they've ever been in nature, ever been away from home. And it is an incredibly powerful experience for the kids themselves, but also for the teens who spend all year raising funds to be able to operate the camp and also staff it. And during one of the weekends, this teen noticed one of the young boys have the pant leg was completely wet after they had just distributed ice cream sandwiches. And she went up to him saying, what's with your pants? And she realized what had happened is the kid was saving the ice cream sandwich so that he could take it home to share with his family because he had never had ice cream before and didn't realize that it had melted. Oh my gosh. The impact that experience had on that teen has informed all of her life decisions since that Mm -hmm. point in terms of where she wants to go to school, what she wants to study. But similarly, to think of the impact that the weekend had on this particular kid and understanding what life could potentially be able to provide him and knowing that there were people out there who were supporting him and wanting to give him those experiences. It's that kind of story that happens over and over and over again that doesn't often get told or isn't heard as much as it should be. That's a fantastic 
story, just like you said, a little snippet of, of the impact that this work on so many levels has on our youth. It's fantastic. Now, I think that I know what motivates me to do this work is the sense that we really can help our young people to find meaning, purpose, and joy to better themselves to better their communities and to better their world. And that is a very powerful feeling. But I also think that there's some very practical elements to youth engagement as well. And I think that we have to recognize that, as you said, I think at the top of the call, Michelle, is that we're talking from a reform movement perspective, you know, over 500,000 young reformed Jews. And if you think about those who are unaffiliated, it's clear easily double that number. And really sort of thinking about how do we take advantage, especially within the reform movement, the number of young people who are already engaged either in religious school and making sure that we're taking that broader perspective and not only thinking about who it is that we're serving within, but given who is within, how can we use that as a way to branch out, use it as an ability to do an outreach strategy as well as uh, looking at it from a position of, of abundance. Lastly, is I do think that it's incredibly important that we recognize and truly appreciate that it is our young people who are actually teaching us what it means to grow up uh, in a rapidly changing world. And if we're not in relationship with them, it's unclear to me how it is that we're actually going to adapt our organizations for the future. So again, I think that it is imperative that we really embrace this work for the benefit to our young people, as well as to the importance to our organizations. That's great. You know, as a youth worker, a hard piece of it, when you had older adults and you're like, just listen to the kids, especially in a synagogue, you're like, yeah. just, they're not just there to you know, help serve the dinner on Friday night or be the ushers at the fundraiser, like listen to what they have to say in, in being part of our, our community. Um, and that's just on the synagogue level. Wonderful, Miriam. Well, thank you so very much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you for having me. One of the things I really liked about my conversation with Miriam well, she had a lot of really great stories. And I think that really animated the conversation in illustrating her work. We should all have some really great stories, not just about our work, but about our life as well. Miriam highlighted the fact that her organization was presented with a problem a number of years ago. And together, they created a solution to deal with this problem that wasn't going to work in a year or two years but they wouldn't see the fruits of their labor for 10 or 15 years down the road. This kind of change takes long-term investment in order to improve the issues we see in our Jewish community. Youth work in particular is a really tough field. And as you grow older, options become more and more limited. For the time that people do work in Jewish youth, specifically within the reform movement, The URJ is focusing on providing professional development resources, networking opportunities, and ways to professionalize the field so that one day there is a robust career in the world of serving Jewish teens. Youth work is such an important part of not only the experience of growing up 
Jewish and the introduction to a career as a Jewish professional, the best way we have to articulate how Jewish values play a role in the way that we live our lives. The URJ is lucky to have Miriam at the helm to help their professionals and their team create these amazing experiences that help shape our youth. A few exciting podcast announcements today. The first being, we have a brand new editor for our program, which makes my life a lot easier. Thank you to Nick Bowden for all of his work editing our podcast. Hopefully, we'll be able to keep him for a long time. That being said, we also have a new podcast partner, which you heard at the break, Nonprofit Learning Lab, which is a fantastic resource that I'll be talking about over the next four podcasts. I mentioned their institutes. They also have online trainings and an online nonprofit conference. You can join as a member to enjoy more resources on their website, nonprofitlearninglab.org. And a final thank you to Timeless Ketuba for their partnership and helping support this project. If you haven't gone to their website yet, I encourage you to do so, timelessketuba.com. The last thing I want to mention, this podcast has over 2,500 downloads from all of the combined episodes. And I'm so happy to see so many people enjoying the conversations I'm having. So I know you're out there, and I know you must have thoughts and opinions about this project. So please, please, please get in contact with me. Tell me what you think. My email address directly is michellewmalkin at gmail.com. Give me some ideas of who you'd like to hear from. Let me know if you like the structure of the program and just what you think. As we've talked about on this program, feedback is very important to allow people to not only feel good about the work that they're doing, but to improve in the areas that might not be so strong. So I need your feedback. I want your input. Email me, go to the website, contact me through there to you know the podcast.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week and we will see you in two weeks. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at itswhoyouknowthepodcast.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast. Podcast.